Well, we've been in a series for quite some time now called Jesus, and that started with us looking at Jesus' birth, and then we've gone for a number of NYAs now looking at Jesus' life, and now we're transitioning into this third and final portion in which we're going to be looking at Jesus' death. And so tonight, uh, we're going to start that as we look at the topic of communion. We're going to be looking at Jesus' last meal that he has before he dies. And then uh, the next NYA, Daniel's going to be sharing about Jesus' arrest. And then on Good Friday, which is on our NYA night, I'll be speaking on the topic of Jesus' death. I want to encourage you uh, to join us as we um, have the Good Friday service here and is going to be led uh, by our young adults. And in fact, uh, if you would like to participate with us, you can do that. One of the things that we're uh, doing that's a little bit different is when Daniel and I were in Colorado, we were at this church. Am I making a lot of feedback noises? No? Okay. It's only me that's hearing it. Okay. So we were at this church in Colorado, and they did something that was really interesting. It was, it was normal worship, but they used uh, a, a, a choir as a part of it that was really fun. And so we were talking with Getter, and we were saying, you know what, it'd be really cool to do something similar to what we saw in Colorado for the Good Friday service. And we're, so we're going to do that. And a number of you have signed up to, to participate in that. And uh, we want to encourage you, if you like singing, if you would like to be a part of our Good Friday services, there's two services that we're going to be doing at 2 and 4 p.m. We would love it if you would come and join us. So you can talk with me, you can talk with Daniel at the end, you can email Gettert uh, and, and be a part of our Good Friday service. It's going to be a, a great time. The NYA after that, we're going to be looking at Jesus' resurrection, and then we have two more NYAs before the end of the year, and we're off to Float Fest. So that's kind of an idea of what everything's looking like uh, for the rest of the year. Tonight, as we move into looking at this last meal that Jesus has with his disciples, there is a theme that is found throughout the Bible and that's found throughout Jesus' time with his disciples as he is continually foreshadowing what's to come. And I don't know if you've ever seen like a movie that does this really well, you know, like Nancy and I were watching a movie just this last week, and at one point Nancy goes, oh man, he's going to die, right? And you, you know like the character's going to die because it's foreshadowing it, right? And you're like, oh, okay, I see this, and, and, and then you're just waiting for the person to die. However, there's also those movies that are so subtle about the foreshadowing that it's not until you get to the very end of the movie, and then the person dies, and you're like, oh man, and then all of a sudden all these pieces fall into place, and you're like, oh, I should have seen that. should have seen that coming, but, you know, you didn't see it. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where, you know, you should have seen something coming, but you didn't see it? You should have seen those foreshadowing moments, and you're completely oblivious. Uh, I've had a number of those moments in my life. Uh, the first one, or one of the major ones that I, that I think of, I'm sure I've had many, uh, was when I came to Canada. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of how I originally came here uh, to Canada. If you didn't know, I'm, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. And it all started when I had I'd given my life to the Lord. I was following Jesus, and I decided that it would be important in my growth as a Christian to go to this young adults conference that was taking place in Portland. So 
I, I did, so I signed up for this conference, and they did something that would never take place today. You, you signed up for the conference, and then they just told you, hey, you're in hotel room, you know, 201. And you're like, okay, and you go to 201, and like, whoever's in that room, like, that's who you're hanging with for the weekend. And I open the door, and there's this dude sitting on the bed. And I'm like, hey, and he's like, hey. And it was like this awkward moment where like, we're going to be sleeping together for like the next three days. And, and, uh, and we're both like, I hope you're not weird. <laughs> and, and so we started talking. And as we started talking, we you know, were asking, you know, what are you doing? And I was telling him how I was going to community college. I was actually in Corvallis living at my sister's house. And I asked him what he was doing. And he said, dude, he goes, you will not believe this. And I'm like, what? And he's like, there is, if you go north, he's like, there's a country up there. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah. He goes, it's called Canada. And I'm like, no. And he's like, and I honestly, I was one of those Americans. I thought Canada was a part of the U.S. that no one talked about. And there was really far north, like near Alaska. Like didn't really, wasn't quite sure where it was, but I knew if you went far enough, you're either going to hit Alaska or Canada. And so he began to tell me about this amazing place called Canada that had all these mountains. And it, he's just like, it's just this winter wonderland. And then there's bears and all sorts of things. And you can go hiking there. And I am like falling in love. And then he tells me the part that just sells me. He goes, they even have their own money there. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and then he pulled out some. And I'm like, that doesn't look like money. And he goes, I know. And then, and then and he goes, and you know what? He goes, it's not even worth very much. And I'm like, this is amazing. And, and he's like, listen, I go to college there, and it costs me hardly anything because their money's just worthless. And I'm like, this place sounds amazing. Honestly. And, and so I, I'm like, I've got to go to this, this college. So he told me that, listen, there's this college up in Canada. It's on Trinity Western's campus. It's called Northwest. And you can go do your BA, and you can also go backpacking at the same time. I'm like, sold. And so he takes me down into the conference where that school was, and I was able to meet with this girl named Jamie and this other guy, and they began to tell me about the school, and I'm like, sign me up. I am I'm ready to go. And this girl, Jamie's like, hey, you know, uh, this, you know, after the conference, it was Sunday, and she's like, I don't have anywhere to go. Can I go to your church with you? And I was like, great, yeah, come to my church with me. And then she came to church with me. And then, and then after church, she goes, hey, uh, you know, I don't got anything to do. And, and, and I'm like, well, why don't you hang out with my friends and I? So she hang out, hung out with my friends and I, and we had this great time. And, and then she went off to Canada, and soon I was heading up to Canada. And uh, by the way, I got to, this, is awesome. this honestly happened. I had no idea how far it was when I started going north, when I would finally get to Canada. But after I'd driven for a while, I, took, I turned off in this place called Bellingham, and I decided I would get a hotel for the night so that I could be fresh for the next day as I made this huge journey north. I was furious when 30 minutes later I was at the border. And I was like, oh, you know, as a poor college student, I'm like, I could have saved myself some money. I, like, now I look at it, and I'm like, there were signs. Like, how stupid are you? <laughs> but I get, I get to this, you know, this Canada, and I begin to go to this school, and I'm loving this school, and October rolls around, and I find out that Canada has Thanksgiving. I'm like, this is, like, mind-blowing. And, and, you know, it's a different time than ours and, and whatnot. And this girl, Jamie, again, she's like, hey, Andy. She goes, uh, you know, I'm from Vancouver Island. She goes, why don't you come over 
to my house and you can spend Thanksgiving with us. And I'm like, that would be cool, you know, like get the full Canadian experience. So I said, you know, can my roommate come along? And she's like, yeah, yeah, bring your roommate. That'll be fun. And uh, I, I quickly regretted bringing my roommate because as I got to Vancouver Island and I met Jamie's friend, Jamie's friend was gorgeous, and I, I proceeded to try to sit next to Jamie's friend at dinner, but as soon as I sat next to her, she got up and moved and sat next to my roommate, and Jamie Camming sat next to me, and I'm like, this is the worst. <laughs> she likes my roommate, right? That night we went dancing, we went swing dancing, and is that like lame or something? Or just seeing me swing dancing. Sounds lame. What was that? All right, all right, too many Mennonites. All right, dancing actually takes place out there. And so we're dancing, and I'm dancing with this beautiful girl, but then she dances me over to Jamie and swaps with me, and she's now dancing with my roommate. And I'm like, this is the worst. I should have never brought you. All the ladies are like, you are such an idiot. All the guys are like, man, you shouldn't have brought your roommate. I get on the ferry to head back to school, and this girl comes up to me, and she's like, you are an idiot. And I'm like, what? And she's like, Jamie likes you. And I'm like, what? And, and she's like, did you not see everything going on? And I'm like, no. And added to the fact, I had no idea that there was a girl code. All the girls are like, mm-hmm, right? <laughs> she, like, Jamie had already like, said, I, I like this guy, right? So her friend's like, you know, hands off. And it was this really awkward experience. I get to, by the way, the end of the year, I get the yearbook, and I flip back through this yearbook, and everywhere I am, there's Jamie, like, standing beside me. It was one of those creepy moments where I'm like, I really should have seen this coming, but I was completely oblivious. If you have your Bibles, grab it with me, with that in mind. I share that story with you, one, just to let you know what an idiot I am. And two, uh, because as we come to the scriptures, there is this foreshadowing, like I'm talking about, that's taking place throughout the Bible, it's taking place throughout the Gospels, and the, the disciples are just idiots. They, they, they cannot see what's taking place all around them, and, and, I, and it's one of those moments where you know after it all took place, and they're like, man, we should have understood what Jesus was doing. We should have understood what he was saying, but we just didn't get it. And you see these moments like in Luke chapter 9. You can turn there with me. In Luke chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus comes to his disciples, and he strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And the disciples are like, what? You're get, what? Completely confused. You know, Jesus, why would you be talking about your death? Jesus, we've seen you heal people. We've seen you, we've seen you do amazing miracles. There's no way that's going to happen to you. You're God's anointed one. But then again, in verse 43, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, hey, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And again, the disciples were like, they didn't, they didn't understand, verse 45, they didn't understand what he meant. It was hidden from them so that they didn't grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. They're confused. 
It's one of those moments, right, where we forget that the disciples are in the story. See, we're, we're like looking outside the story. We know everything that's going to happen. And so it can be easy for us to be like, man, they're so dense. He's just explaining it to them. But right, we forget sometimes that they're living it. They're right in the moment. In fact, it reminds me of the movie that we watched on Saturday. We watched Free Solo together. And there's, so it's this guy, right, Alex Honnold, that's climbing a 3,200-foot mountain without a rope. And as you're watching it, there's these moments where the cameramen are like this, right? They, they, they can barely watch, right? It's gut-wrenching for them. They're, they're right in the middle of the story. They don't know that he, makes, that, that he makes it to the top. And for them, at any moment, he could fall through that frame to, the, to his death. They're experiencing it. And you get this sense that the disciples are experiencing it. They're watching this take place. They're, they're trying to process it, but they, they don't understand. And there's just that Jesus now predicts his death a third time in chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. This, uh, the disciples, verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So you just see these moments over and over again where the disciples are just clueless. They're, they're trying to understand, but they're just lagging behind. This isn't, just, this isn't just true of the disciples. You see this of the Jewish nation. There are these moments throughout the Bible where God is foreshadowing and explaining to them what is going to happen. They don't see it. But when we come into this portion of Jesus' life, and as we look now, as he's, he's about to have this last meal with his disciples, and he is going to die, all of the pieces begin to fall into place. Over the next three days, for these disciples, they're going to begin to understand what Jesus is talking about, and all of this symbolism is, is being fulfilled right in front of them. And this is what the text that we, that we arrive at tonight that we want to look at, and that's Luke chapter 22. And in Luke chapter 22, what we find ourselves is in the first century here that Jesus is living in, it is Passover time. And, and Passover is when the Jews would go to Jerusalem. There are people from all over the world that's descending on the city. And they have come to, to sacrifice a lamb at the temple. And, and, and the symbolism of that is, is important to this, these Jews as they're coming to celebrate the Passover meal. And for the Jews, this Passover meal is a meal of remembrance. As they come together, they're remembering what God has done for them and remembering specifically how God has freed the Jewish nation from Egypt. And when God, through Moses and Aaron, freed the Jewish nation from Egypt, he said to them, listen, I want you to have this meal so that you won't forget what I've done for you. And it's this incredible scene that plays out in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to read it, as God begins to explain to the Jews that are enslaved in Egypt, 
explaining to them just how powerful he is as he's freeing them. But as he frees them, he's freeing them more than just from Egypt because you begin to see, and this is made explicitly clear in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, when he begins to explain that this is a battle that's taking place between the God, the gods of Egypt, and the true God, God Almighty. And explain, listen, these other gods do not exist, these gods of, of um, all these different, you know, whether or not be cows or whether or not be sickness or whatever it might be that God is using these different plagues to show them, listen, I am the true God and I have power over all of these things. And it's coming to this head where Pharaoh hasn't let the people go and there's this one last plague that's remaining. And it is the symbolism of the God of life and death. And God's like, listen, I want you to understand that I am the true God and I have power over life and I have power over death. And it's this incredible scene where God unleashes the angel of death on the nation. And he says to the Jewish people, listen, if you are to be safe, you need to take a lamb, you need to slaughter that lamb, you need to take that lamb's blood and you need to paint your doorposts with that blood. To the Jews, this was quite significant because the doorpost, as they're painting this, this looks like the eighth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Chet, that I can't pronounce very well. They have, they have a really guttural noise as they make that, that uh, letter. But it's a letter that looks like a doorpost. It's a letter that represents life and they understand that this, this significance that here it is, that his blood is outlining a doorway that they need to walk through for life. And as they go in through this doorway and they're in their home, this, this angel of death passes over the Jewish nation. But death comes to the Egyptians. And that it's this powerful moment where they begin to see that this God, that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, is the true God that has true power, and the people are freed from Egypt. And in chapter 12, Moses begins to explain to the people how they are to celebrate this meal, that they're to celebrate this victory that God had that freeing them from the Egyptians by wearing shoes when they eat the meal, by standing up when they eat the meal, by holding a rod in their hand when they eat the meal. All of these things symbolic of why, uh, of, of this freedom that they incurred through God that they would need to flee quickly from Egypt. And so a part of this meal is that they were to eat bread and it was to be unleavened bread. And the idea simply being that there wasn't enough time for the, for the yeast to go through the dough and for it to rise. It needed to be made quickly, packaged, and left. And this ultimately becomes part of the symbolism of this Passover meal. And in Luke 22... This is the mindset of the disciples as Jesus explains to them, listen, I want you to go into Jerusalem. And he says, you're going to find a man carrying a, 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 a water vase. And, and, I, and I want you to follow that man. He's going to show you an upper room that I've prepared so that you and I can celebrate this meal together. And, and I don't get the impression, by the way, that this is some miraculous thing taking place. I get the impression that Jesus has been 
preparing this. He probably knew some people in Jerusalem in this upper room that he could use, which would have been very common at that time, as you needed to have a group of 10 or more to celebrate Passover together. And so the Jews, these disciples, they go and they prep in this upper room so that they can celebrate this Passover meal together. Now in verse 22, uh, chapter 22 of Luke, starting in verse 14, this is what we read of what begins to take place in this meal. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Now, this is kind of interesting, by the way. It's been a long time since Moses and since they needed to put shoes on and stand for this meal. So you can already see that some of the significance isn't being fully played out. Uh, at this time, they, were, they, they would sit when they would have this meal. Verse 15, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. Man, this, this last week, as I was just reading and as I was just meditating on God's word, this just really hit me. Think, think about what Jesus is saying here. He's already foreshadowed over and over again to his disciples, I'm going to die for you. And now here is this moment where he's about to be killed. He's, he's taking his last meal. This is it. Everything's coming to a head. He's going to die. And what does he say to them? I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. Man, as I was just thinking about that, I think that there's it's so important for you and I to remember that God loves you. That God eagerly desired for his plans to be fulfilled so that the kingdom of God would come. He loves his disciples. He's willing to die for them and he's eagerly waited this moment as he can begin to explain to them that he is the fulfillment of everything that God's been doing. And you see this, by the way, just flip over quickly uh, down to verse uh, 37. As Jesus says, it is written, and he's going to quote now from Isaiah 53, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. God is like, finally, my plans that I've put into place are coming together, and I'm going to show you once and for all that I am the Lord Almighty, and I have power over life and death. See, we've seen this power displayed as, as, as God defeated the, the gods of Egypt. But this is so much more of God's fulfillment as, as he is going to battle for not just the Jewish nation, but for all people. This battle that is, is, is taking place as the significance of this meal is going to begin to change. And we see this taking place as we continue here now in verse 17. And I want you to notice this because sometimes... Uh, when you're reading your Bible, this may slip past you, and this is interesting. 
Verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And just pause there for a moment just to explain something to you. That Greek word uh, thanks is the, the word Eucharist. So in some churches, you may hear that communion is called Eucharist, and this is why they call it that. It means thanksgiving. And by the way, for those of you that are Mennonite in the room, uh, you may find it interesting that the Greek word for Passover is Pascha, right? I got to tell you, amen, right? When I came to Canada and I married myself a Mennonite girl, I remember my first Easter with a Mennonite family and they brought out this thing called Pascha and I fell in love with her family. I'm like, girl, if you can make this, I will marry you, right? Like, you can just, just feed this to me. So, the, so Pascha, right, it's Passover bread. And this is, uh, what, what, this is the symbolism that's taking place here. Now notice what I'm getting at here is that this is the first cup. We're going to see in just a moment, if you look down quickly to verse 20, that Jesus is going to take another cup. And you might be wondering, well, what's going on there? And the, the interesting aspect is for the Jews, they would take four cups. They would, they would drink from the cup four times that had four significance, uh, four different significant uh, ideas that are being communicated. The first is the cup of sanctification. The second is the cup of thanksgiving that we're seeing Jesus doing here. The third is the cup of redemption. And the fourth will be the cup of, uh, uh, of uh, acceptance. And so this now is significant as Jesus is taking this cup and, and he is thanking, this cup of thanksgiving as he says, take this and divide it among you. As he's taking um, this cup, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This, this is it, right? He, he's heading to his death in verse 19 and he took the bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and so what you're beginning to see is this meal of remembering of God freeing the Jewish nation from Egypt is now finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And these, these different aspects of the meal are now being seen through the light of Jesus in its fulfillment. That bread that was to be without yeast so that they could leave Egypt quickly is now being shown as Jesus' body. And that idea of yeast was uh, understood in Jewish culture that yeast was, was seen as symbolic of sin. And you see that now this bread is without yeast, or this body is without sin, and this body is being broken for you. Jesus' sinless body is broken for you. And instead of us being freed from an oppressive ruler like Egypt, you and I are freed from a much greater oppressor, a much greater slavery, the slavery of evil, of sin. And the Jews, these disciples are going to begin to understand this shortly in the next two days as, as Jesus dies. And then as he rises again and they begin to see that he truly does have power over life and death and that he is victorious. So then we read in verse 20 that in the same way after the supper, he took the cup. This would be the third cup, the cup of uh, repentance. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This 
This is a really significant idea because the Jews were under a covenant. They were under a relationship. It wasn't a contract. It was like a marriage. They were in this, this covenantal relationship with God that they would be faithful to him. He would be faithful to them. But in that relationship, as you and I know, the Jews were not faithful and God was faithful. And because they couldn't keep their end of the bargain, God keeps it for them and ultimately does so through Jesus Christ. He is their redemption. He is our redemption. And in Genesis and in Exodus, we're told that if you want to ratify a covenant, you have to do so with blood. And as Jesus is talking about this cup, this wine in that case, that's being poured out, he's saying that this is representative of blood and that this covenant is being ratified in Jesus and that you and I now have a relationship with God through him. And and everything begins to change as they begin to realize that once this, this meal, this Passover meal, that was to remind them about being freed from Rome, from Egypt. It's now this meal that is a remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for them that they might have freedom. And, and what I find so interesting about this story is when you read in Exodus chapter 12, you see in verse 26 that Moses says to them, listen, I'm telling you all the symbolism. I'm telling you about this meal that you need to take part in once a year in this remembrance so so that you won't forget. But he puts it this way. He says, so that when your kids come to you and ask you, what's the significance of this to you? This is how he words it. The significance of it to you, that you would have an answer. I gotta tell you, I was thinking about that. Imagine, right? God's standing before you and he's asking you, what, what is the significance of this meal to you? One day, if your kid or maybe as a friend or somebody were to come to you and ask you, hey, what's the significance of this meal to you? What would be your answer? And as I was thinking about that, I, 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 had, I had two ideas. The first one is this. One thing that I think is important for us to do in answering a question like that is to remember that this isn't a ceremony. It's a meal. It's a meal to remind us of relationship. And I think sometimes we have to be careful that we don't go one of two extremes, right? One where we treat this as just any ordinary day and any ordinary event, any ordinary meal, and the other extreme where we make this into a tradition, we make this into this, uh, this elaborate ceremony that becomes entrenched and we begin to lose significance of it. Something, there's something interesting, by the way, about your faith. Your faith is very much like working out. If you've ever worked out before, you know that if, if you begin to do like bench press or if you begin to do certain activities and you do the same ones over and over again, your muscles get used to that. And your muscles will stop growing. They, they will just be really used to doing whatever routine you do and that's it. And so if you ever wanna see any sorts of gains, if you ever wanna see any improvement in your health, you have to vary it. You've gotta switch things up. And I find that your faith is really similar. If you want your faith to grow, you gotta switch things up. You can't grow stagnant. 
in the way that you interact with God, in the way that you come to church and, and you engage with him in worship and you come before this meal, you have to take it in anew and switch things up and to see things differently. Or it just becomes the same old thing that you always do. You know, this one time became really uh, powerfully uh, illustrated to me when I, I met this guy named Matt. Matt was a Jehovah's Witness uh, for a number of years. He grew up in a Jehovah's Witness family. And he began to have doubts about the whole Jehovah's Witness doctrine, and he began to ask people about it. And he began to realize that a lot of his Jehovah's Witness friends and family had their own doubts. But they were too afraid to raise those doubts. They were too afraid to really get at the heart of their questions because they knew that if they were ever to decide that this wasn't true, they would lose all of their friends and family. And that's exactly what happened to Matt when he decided that it wasn't true and he wanted to know who Jesus really was. And he came to faith in Christ. And, and I remember I've done a number of events with, with Matt where we've gone and spoken in different places and we were driving along one day. And I said, hey Matt, when you came to faith in Christ, what was the, what was the most significant part of that for you? And he said, oh man, without question was communion. And I said, well, why was that? And he says, because communion is in the Jehovah's Witness church is done the same way every year. He goes, every, we, he goes, we celebrate communion once a year in the Jehovah's Witness church. And on the day that we celebrate communion, we take this bread, we take this juice, and we pass it around the entire congregation. But nobody partakes in it. They just pass it on to each other. And he says, and everybody looks at one another to see if anybody's going to take of the communion meal. And I said, what do you mean? I go, you guys don't all take it? And he goes, no. He goes, the communion meal is only for the elect. It's only for the chosen few, the 144,000 that get to be with God. He said, the rest of us, we just hope that one day we'll be able to go to an earthly paradise. But they know that they have a relationship with God. And, and I remember going, Wow, and then he said this to me, and this just blew me away. He goes, Andy, taking communion for me was so significant that the first time I did it, he says, I couldn't do it in a church. He said, I went into my room, and he says, in the privacy of my room, he says, I just collapsed on my knees, and with tears in my eyes, I took communion for the first time. Because it was then that I realized that God loved me. It was then that I could see this history of God foreshadowing over and over again that he loves me and he's desiring to have this meal with me that I have relationship with God. And this isn't a hope, this is a sure thing that I have through Jesus. And man, when I heard that, I was like, man, I gotta start taking communion different, right? Because I, I, it, it's lost its significance for me. This is just something I partake in and I forget how significant it is that Jesus died for me and that I have, a, I have a relationship with him. And the last thing that I just want to say is this. When I think about that question, what does this mean to me? And I was just dwelling on that this week and I was just thinking, you know, how would I answer that question? You know, what does this mean to me? What would I say to my kids? There's two things that immediately came to my mind. And as I'm sharing this with you, I wonder what you would say. What would your answer to this be? What does this mean to you? And immediately I remember what this means to me because when I came to faith in Christ and when I saw what I had in him, I went from a meaningless existence 
And I mean that. I grew up in a broken family. I thought this world was just chance. I didn't think that there was anything to this. I thought you just live and die and that's it. And you are dead for eternity and all of it's meaningless. But then when I came to Christ and, and, I, and I partook in this meal and realized that I have eternal life in Christ, the world looked different. It like went from black and white to color as I began to realize that everything has meaning in Jesus. The world is incredibly meaningful to him and it changed the way that I live. I went from a guy who just sucked at school and barely did the, the, you know, I did the least that I needed to to get by. And man, when I met Jesus, it changed my world. And all of a sudden, I loved learning. Learning in a meaningful world totally looks different. But the big one for me was also this. I didn't just experience freedom from a meaningless world. I experienced freedom from sin. And this was huge to me because now... Some of you maybe have just gotten, you know, too used to hearing that. But, but when you live in brokenness and you see your family history, a dad that left your mom and his, his dad was a dirtbag and his dad was a dirtbag and you just look at your family of alcoholics and just brokenness everywhere, you look at that and you think to yourself, that's my future. And, and I remember when I came to Jesus and my prayer to him was this. I said, Jesus, I look at my past and I see how broken and messed up it is. And I said, I don't want to be my father. I, I, I want to be a man of integrity. I don't want to make the mistakes I've seen throughout my family history. And I said, Jesus, I'll follow you, but will you lead me to a place where my future's better than what I've seen in my past? And I had this moment when I came to this beautiful land, Canada, and I was at Trinity Western, and I was, that first year, I'm jogging around Trinity's track, and I had this moment where I stopped. I was praying while I was, jog, while I was jogging, and I just stopped, and, and I, just, I just collapsed to my knees, and I just started crying. I'm not like a super emotional dude, as you guys know, but like I, I'm, I, was a, I was weeping because I was looking at the trajectory of my life, and I began to see that he was faithful, that he was leading me in a good direction, and that I wasn't leading into all the garbage that I had seen in my past. And, and I just said, thank you. Listen, it's, it's, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going we're gonna to go into a time of celebrating communion together. And as I was just praying about tonight, and as I was just thinking about this question, what does this mean to you? God just placed it on my heart to just share with you. I, I think that there's some of you that need to remember that when we celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus that freedom is a reminder of a new beginning. And I think that there's some of you, as we come to the communion table tonight, you, you need to be reminded that this is a meal of new beginnings. That this is a meal that reminds you that, that, that your past may be broken, but you don't have to have a broken future. That you can start anew. This can be a new beginning for you. And I, I want to encourage you as we prepare to go into a time of communion, I just want to encourage you to close your eyes and just meet with the Lord right now and be thinking in, in your mind, is, what does this meal mean to me? Have I grown stagnant? Have I made this into a tradition? Has it lost its significance? And there's some of you that you need a new beginning. And it's time to start over with Jesus and he can and he will free you.
And I wanna encourage you as we come to the communion table tonight, this is, this is a chance to start anew. As you walk in relationship with God, a God who loves you and desires desperately to enjoy this meal with you, that reminds you that you're free, reminds you that you have relationship with God for eternity. It doesn't get any better than that. And I'm telling you, it will change your life. It'll change your life. On a pragmatic note, this bread's gluten-free. This isn't wine, it's juice. And it's symbolic. It's symbolic of his body. It's symbolic of his blood that was broken and that was shed for you, that you might have a relationship with him. This is a meal for those people that have placed their trust, their hope, and their love in Jesus. And if that's you, then as the worship team's gonna lead us in a moment, I wanna encourage you to come forward and I want you to embrace Jesus and his love for you in this meal. And there might be some of you tonight that this is your very first time taking that step of faith and I wanna encourage you to do that. Come to the table he desires to share this meal, this relationship with you. The Apostle Paul said this to the church in Corinth. He said, for I, for, uh, I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new relationship in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a meal of hope. It is a meal shared as a family, as the church. And so as you come forward, I just want you to know that there are people up front that would be willing to pray with you. We'll be here through the songs and we'll be here at the end of the service. Come and pray with a brother and sister in Christ. And we also have cards in the back that are prayer, uh, praise and, and prayer requests. And tonight as a leadership team, we've already gathered together and we prayed over Last Enway's cards. And I wanna encourage you, fill one of those out. Let people be a part of your life. Let people pray with you. Jesus, we're so thankful for you. And as we come to the communion table tonight, we come anew knowing that you love us and that you've desperately desired and eagerly looked forward to sharing this meal for us, the fulfillment of everything you're doing, that we have hope, we have love, that we have a new future in you. So as we come tonight, we come because we love you and we thank you.